Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with me, V8 Sleuth Podcast for another edition. 2023 is off and rolling and I'm excited to bring you this chat. It's the first of a two-part chat with longtime racer, publisher and S5000 category founder, Chris Landon. Now, as you'll hear in this podcast, his involvement in the sport is really, really wide and diverse. From being on the karting scene overseas at the same time as none other than Ed Senna, to buying a Brock Bathurst winning Commodore, and taking on the Goliaths of Motorsport Magazine Publishing, we cover it all. Now, I have to tell you too before we get into this one, I recorded this on the Tuesday after the Bathurst 12 hour, and I was clearly still, well, probably half asleep. I forgot to press one of the buttons that makes the audio go through the microphones rather than the little microphone that sits in the recorder. So the audio isn't as good as it normally would be. That's my bad. But the story of Chris's motorsport career will more than make up for it. So let's barrel into it. Buckle up. It's time to start part one of Chris Lambden on the V8 Salute podcast. Chris Lambden, do you realise that this is all your fault? Pretty much what we're about to do today? Uh, a lot of things are my fault, uh, Aaron, <laughs> but um, yes, I do. I do realise this. Um, I do realise that uh, we gave you your first job out of high school, and uh, so anyone that's ever got a little bit, bit of an issue with Aaron, don't ring me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for stopping by. We've got um, There's heaps of stuff to talk about, and some of this stuff we've talked about over the, the years from, as you say, when I was a, a young chap turning up at Motorsport News in was it Caulfield North? I think it was back in the day. That period, my dad would drive me down in school holidays and um, dump me at the office on the way through and then pick me up on the way out and I did classifieds and I did all the the, uh, the simple jobs back in the day. So um, You're going to start somewhere yeah, and, uh, and God, look what we created. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's all your fault. But, mate, there's so much to talk about. But I want to know, where does your racing passion story start? So you you're, you're born in the UK, but you're a Kiwi. You grew up in New Zealand after your family moved there, and you've lived in Australia for now pretty much nearly, what, 40 years, just about. So you're a Commonwealth fellow, but oh, you're yes. a Kiwi. You're a Kiwi. Yes, I guess so. I grew up there, so that's fundamentally what you are. Where you grew up is what you are. And, uh, yeah, look, after we <clears throat> moved out to Christchurch, um, my uncle, who lived there, took me to the 1963 Lady Wigram Trophy race, and it was my first motor race. Uh, and I guess it's pretty fair to say that, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but I got hooked and um, it just went on from there. What hooked you? Was it the the, the noise, the sights, the particular driver, the particular car? What was the, the whole thing? thing? Yeah. The whole thing, you know, and, and I want to do this, I think was the thing. As, as well. in drive? Yeah, 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 one day, you know, um, and that is the thing that I think drives a lot of people in motorsport. and. And it's you know people around motorsport who've never had the opportunity to to do it at some level sometimes struggle to understand what drives them. But um, yeah, uh, it was li- it was literally that simple. And you know, <laughs> I, was, I was like any other kid. I had slot cars, with, you know, race slot cars fairly seriously. Um, and I got into carts, you know, on my fourteenth birthday, and just 
went on from there. So 14, actually, now, you, that's late to go karting for, for most kids. I mean, kids are in karts at seven and eight and, and stuff like that. So was that a case of begging, pleading to try to get a deal done with mum and dad to get the money or did you get left on your own or did someone help? How did you, did you get it? Yeah, look, it was a different time back then. There was no, you know, nine and eight-year-olds uh, going to world championships and things like that. <laughs> it, was, it was completely different. I mean, I, you know, I went through the, the mill, I suppose you'd say, there and, um, gosh, I was, uh, must have been in my, uh, certainly 21 when I actually won my first New Zealand title. So, and I was considered the young buck of the team that went to Hong Kong to race at the big race there. So it was a different time. You know, you were considered uh, literally a kid until much later in the process. Um, you know, and that was not, you know, that was, if you go back even further, you go back to the days of, you know, Bruce McLaren, Denny Holm, Chris Amon, you know, they just rocked up to Europe in a pair of jeans and with a few bucks in their pocket and, and story just went from there but the world's a very different place now but so um yeah um just went through the karting thing and um i guess the uh the, the crucial point came when we decided to go to england um you know i'd been at university what were you studying ostensibly studying architecture um but after two years the school and i agreed that my um you know long-term future was probably elsewhere <laughs> uh, so I, I was lucky i i, I um i met up with and, and worked for and got sponsored by a, a guy called ian ballinger who was a new zealand olympic shooter who got into karting sports business sponsored me for a while in carts and with enough to uh, to think well we'll go off to england and have a go and this is with eyes on going further car racing or all about karting? No, it was all about karting. Like, I, I don't come from a you know, wealthy family and, and uh, I, I never really figured that cars would come into the picture. So it was about, we went over there, you know, in May to sort of live there briefly and aim at having a go at the World Championship and in September. late 70? This would have been 77. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was really amateur hour. You know, we, we, were, <laughs> we were a fair way behind the Europeans at that stage, I think it's fair to say. So, you know, we rock up at the World Championship in a Bedford van with a single chassis and a couple of engines and we just got our ass kicked <laughs> in short. Um, but it was a massively interesting experience. And um, at that point we had to decide, well, yeah, that's it, we'll go back to New Zealand or, or maybe not. And that was one of the crucial little forks in life that uh, cropped up and we stayed in England. So who was in those world champs? Who were some of the names? Because there's some gurus around in karting at that stage on the world stage. Yeah. Well, the winner was, the winner was a guy called uh, an Italian multi-multi-millionaire. Um, his father, I think, had connections, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, he, he's... But he, he's not so well, but uh, I think Andre de Cesarish was running uh, Bulletin, of course, in those days. Uh, Teo Fabi, um, you know, among the, the sort of karting names. So, yeah, uh, it, it was just starting to get to the point where car racing was taking a learning curve out of karting seriously. Where does Senna come into this mix? <coughs> well, <laughs> uh, as I said, we, we decided to stay in England, mm. uh, you know. Why not? Well, here, yeah, let's press on. Kiwis, you know, I went and got a job at Zipcart. Uh, what, what was your gig at Zipcart? Uh, I was just working in the stores. 
Yep. You know, uh, just a job and, and uh, just passing time between races, basically. Yeah, until we found somewhere to stay. We lived in the Bedford Van, you know, in the <laughs> car park for a couple of weeks. It was that's how it was, you know. Yeah. So, but uh, I had, a, I guess, a stroke of luck. Um, Martin Hines, that, who owns the carts, called me and he said, "Oh, we've uh, we've continuing our contract with Terry Fullerton this coming season. Um, he's always done it himself, but we're bringing it in house." Uh, would you like to, um, you know, we want someone to build his equipment, prepare the equipment, test, go racing, pretty much be his main man, you know, what do you reckon? And, like, at that point, to me, Terry Fullerton was the motor racing equivalent of God. You know, I'd seen him from afar at a, at a race meeting, and uh, this is the mystical man, you know. He, he's he was, Mr. Carding. He, he was, was the man. He yeah. was the man. He was, I guess, he's, he's what Ethan Senna became in car racing, you know, the, the man. And here I am being offered the gig of looking after him. So, yeah, did that. We spent that whole year um, doing that, going around Europe in a, in a Mercedes van. Oh, uh, right. yeah, yeah. And we won everything. Like, we won everything except one event, which happened to be the biggest one. But um, around in the lead-up to the World Championship, um, Terry went down to Italy to do some engine testing. I didn't have to go to that. Uh, they had some stuff down there. It was just engine testing. Uh, and he came back and he, he walked in and he said, I won't do, use the swear words. You can uh, if you like. We're, our listeners are okay with swear words. It's fine. He says, I think we might have a problem. I said, what do you mean? There's this little kid from Brazil's rocked up. Um, and uh, he's in the DAP team and he's pretty good Um, you know he's never run on Bridgestone tyres before and he's going to be pretty good I think and that was Ayrton Senna and so he he raced at that world championship for the first time um, and I think he finished fifth at that stage he was just in one or two or three Brazilian kids running around you know not particularly um, standing out as such but uh, what came after that uh, was when for the next two years the two of them went head to head at the, at the top of world karting, and it was, it was, it was a preview of what was to come in Center and Prost. In carts, with in, a, with in a carts, bike. in carts, yeah. And uh, you know, world championship level karting is just motor racing at its absolute raw best. And as Ethan said in the movie, are we talking like dirty tricks, cutthroat stuff, nastiness here? Um, uh, subtle. Subtle dirty tricks. I mean, you know, Fullerton was the was the man. And I've seen him take a guy out at a race once, and the guy didn't even know it was happening. You know, uh, but the the interesting thing to me was that uh, Fullerton part of his success was he was one of the first people to really, really test things properly. And I think that in that environment is where Ayrton learnt a lot. He learnt a lot of Fullerton before he even went into cars as to how to. Uh, methodically go about testing, you know. Um, like with Fullerton, we, we'd run all day with a set of consistent tyres and back-to-back three different chassis, four different engines and all this stuff uh, and come qualifying, put the best stuff together. Whether Whereas Ayrton was going out wanting to be the fastest in every session, new tyres, you know, arms flailing around uh, and so on and so on. And come to qualifying, we put Terry's best set of equipment together we'd go out and beat Centre by three tenths, who'd cry, you know, and, and that's where you know that's where some of the stuff that later happened in cars you could see it sort of um, gestating. If you like. So, did you parked your driving ambitions here because of this 
opportunity to work with Fullerton and then it was this kind of a case of, well, I'm here, this is a great deal, he's the man, let's do it. Are you still racing while this is going? Um, <clears throat> no, I wasn't. I parked it for that year. And I mean, you know, as I said, this was almost like dying and going to heaven in karting terms, uh, working with this guy. There were people who would have killed for that job, literally. Um, and I have to say, I learned more about how to go motor racing that year by not racing and working with him than at any other time. You know, the guy's um, mental approach to how it would be done and, and the way we would do things um, and his attitude to, to all that stuff, attitude to racing was 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 brilliant. And so, um, but you know, it only lasted for one year. And that was 70... That was 78. Eight, yeah. yeah, because the last race of the year was in Japan in 77. Um, and it's <laughs> uh, a little side issue. Um, because we'd done so well that year, um, Zip and, and Daps said I could race. So for one weekend, uh, I was a factory car driver <laughs> uh, in Japan with, with teammates Fullerton and Senna. How about that? But um, on the way back from that, uh, they Martin Hines said, they were thinking of starting a magazine on the sport of karting and what I reckon, and chat, 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 chat. And basically, by the time we landed back in the UK, um, we'd agreed that it was going to happen and I was going to be the, um, the editor of it. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a, a crucial discussion about the fact that because they were major players in the industry, they would have to completely stay away from any editorial, you know, involvement. Mm-hmm which, to their credit, they did. And uh, so Cart and Supercart was launched about three months later, uh, which I did for the next um, four years. So that's where the publishing bit starts to come into your motorsport repertoire because it's a really wide and varied resume <laughs> of motorsport involvement, but that's the first publishing uh, well, element. first proper public, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, at that point, all I'd done was a couple of, you know, newsletters back to the Christchurch Cart Club. Uh, so, yeah, they, they took it very much on trust. And, it, uh, look, we unashamedly copied Autosport in terms of look, layout, uh, you know, everything. We even had um, Barry Foley, who's Catchpole cartoons, doing a cartoon for us, you know. He's a wonderful guy. Um, so uh, it went quite well. And uh, as I said, I did it for four years, but I did get, it, get back into racing um, halfway through that. I have to pick up on the centre bit again because I know yeah. so many of our listeners just would love to hear some more of that. So, could you? You said before about he was kind of, he, he, you know, he was good, like, he, but he was just another one Brazilian-wise. When did he step up to the point where he became the the centre? That I mean, you watched him, you you saw him up close in that era, and then followed him a lot through the the Formula One era. And once he got F three and all that stuff, but what, where did you see the centre revolution really stepping up in that point? Because you were seeing it up close. Well, yeah, as I said, we'd started the karting magazine, so for those next couple of years when he and Fullerton were going head-to-head, I was there as a media person watching up very close. And and he, he came on leaps and bounds, and through that next year, um, you know, evolved, uh, learnt what he needed to learn. Um, he, was, he was a very serious young man, uh, and by the time the World Championship came around, he was right there. He was a contender. Um, the, the team, the DAP team's Italian, of course, so they related quite well. And um, yeah, he, he was an absolute contender. And, and some of the, you could see some, ultimately, some of the things that later cropped up in car racing um, were developing. And one in particular that might be of interest 
was everyone made a you know noticed that in the turbo era through corners he was jabbing the throttle you know bah, 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 you know uh, to keep the turbo and everything happening and well he'd actually done something a little bit similar in karts at the world champs you know anyone who, who races a kart or particularly from that era would remember that uh, drivers used to kind of at the end of the straights just lean over and slightly choke the carburetor to richen it and look after the engine and stuff well he, he had this theory that that uh, something a little bit richer coming out of the corners might be a, a something a bit of a performance gain so he started at certain tracks choking slightly this carburetor coming through and out of corners so he's, if you can picture it he's driving one-handed through some of these corners at a time when the sticky bridge stones were really coming on and so the thing's up on two wheels driving one hand with the other hand kind of reaching over to to uh, you know to mildly choke this thing coming out of the corners and and that's in in theory is, is very similar to what I used to do in a Formula One car through corners and uh, so it started way back there and I, and I remember Fullerton being totally dismissive of that you know he, he sort of said look at him just look at this look at him his arms are going around like a bloody windmill uh, it was that kind of relationship uh, but certainly that's where that's where some of that stuff started. There's that famous piece of the the set of movie that uh, some time ago since it's been released now where I think it was an Adelaide Grand Prix press conference, wasn't it? Where maybe it was Mark Foley that might have even asked the question of asking Senna who he felt was his biggest rival, and I think everyone would expect him to say Prost or maybe Mansell or someone from the Formula One era, but he nominated straight away Terry Fullerton and, and spoke about it further. It's a famous piece of that, that film. Well, exactly, and, and there's a bit of a funny little side thing to that, because of course, in the meantime, I've moved to Australia, uh, motorsport news existed, so I was. Let's say there was 200 people in that room uh, in the media centre at Adelaide. Well, I was there, mm. right? And, and he knew I was there. Um, and he knew who you were. Yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. to say hi. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he started off on this thing, and honestly, 199 people in the room didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And at one point, uh, he kind of looked over as if to say, they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, and yeah, it, and it, it sort of reappeared some years later in the movie. Mm. Um, in the interim, I'd spoken to Fullerton about it. I said, oh, guess what? Um, you know, Ed and reckoned you were pretty cool, and blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. right, terrific. Uh, but when the movie came out, it, it actually revamped Fullerton's career um, as a driving um, mentor for, for young kart racers, which he's still doing to this day. Mm. Where's your world going now? So we go publishing with the magazine, which... Clearly it's a hit because it goes for some time. If it's not a hit, they die very quickly. <laughs> not just then, but in, in more recent times too. So are you back in racing at that stage or are you fully running this kart magazine because there's no time? Yeah. Um, no, 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 not at all. I, I mean, I, uh, the other thing that was very big in England at the time was supercars. Um, and, and that was entirely due to Martin Hines, who owns the cars, who was a very good driver in his own right, pushing, promoting it. You know, and they had things like the Grand British Grand Prix at Silverstone on the old track and race at Brands Action. So I always thought that would be kind of cool to maybe have a go at that. And um, in 81, I think it was, they changed the formula. They used to run air-cooled engines, Yamahas, and they decided we're going to go water-cooled. And so that's always a good time to get into something is when there's a big change because everyone goes back to square one a little yeah. bit. So uh, that's what we did um, through, through, I guess, 
running as a subsidiary, I'd call it, a zip cart. So, I, you know, it was on the spot to see what was happening and uh, we were able to put something together and uh, and so, I, yeah, I got into supercarts and that for the next three years was just, frankly, and racing-wise, just the best time, full stop, end of story. Those things must have been insane at some of those tracks. I mean, they're fast, really fast. They are. <laughs> they are. I mean, if you can imagine Silverstone, the old Silverstone, without even without the chicane, they were doing a genuine 250 kilometres an hour, you know. And at that time, through the promotional effort of Martin Hines and his, his sponsors, you'd get 100 or more come from all over the world just to try and get into the main event at the, at the Grand Prix. You know, and there was a world championship and, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And, uh, yeah, I, I and, until not... That long ago, I'd, I've never driven anything uh, that's quite quite a, a, as big a buzz as, as that. And, and it was due to uh, the obvious speed of the thing, but also the numbers and the competition. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and British champs, European champs, world champs, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Any interesting, famous names that we'd know that you were going up against back then? Um, probably not. To be honest, outside of the karting world, I mean, it, it's a bit like a destination thing for people who don't want to go and race cars. Um, but I'm, I'm just trying to think. And obviously, Martin Hines is, was probably the, the, the big name. Uh, but a lot of them were specialist guys who, who um, had they gone into cars, would have been would have been pretty good. So how did you get to Australia? That's kind of the next chapter here. <laughs> so because yeah. auto actions where you first. Popped up, was it, from a publishing point of view? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like I said, we did this three years of um, uh, uh, supercars, um, and at, uh, at some point there, I, I left that magazine. I'd done four years of it, um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was a, just a really, really good time. Um, we had a bit of success in the supercars, so um, I ended up coming up to Australia purely for family reasons um, at, in '84. You know, and so I'd, I was a little bit, you know, torn because I was, you know, um, up there in supercar, supercar scene. Uh, but yeah, came here for um, just family type reasons. I had nothing organised to come to in terms of job or anything at all. Um, and that's when I guess my second big stroke of luck cropped up. There was a two-line advertisement in the Melbourne Age after I'd been here three weeks, seeking an editor for Auto Action. And um, somehow I conned Len Shaw, who was the uh, managing uh, editor of Sign Magazines at the time, into giving me the gig. And, you know, I knew a fair bit about Formula One and all that stuff. And in terms of Australia, I'd heard there was some well-known guy called Brock. <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot of early learning going on. But, yeah, I mean, how, how lucky can you be? And that got me straight back into motor racing. And that was an amazing time in the sport, too, when you think about it. So... 84 is a year off from the Australian Grand Prix coming to Adelaide. There's world sports car racing at Sandown, which obviously didn't work out, but it was here, it was a thing. Bathurst was being Bathurst. We were about to evolve to international touring car racing. Uh, 500cc bikes growing with Gardner on the world stage, and we eventually got a race later in the decade. There was a lot going on. That was a pretty amazing era of stuff that you were riding no, I think you're right, and I mean, I think sometimes sometimes people accuse you of being a sort of a boring old fart. But I, <laughs> I, I, like a lot of other people, I look upon back at that era as one of the golden eras of motorsport in general. 
you know, you, everything you said is perfectly true. And at the same time, when I got here in 84, uh, Senna had just made his Formula One debut, you know, with Tolman. And I remember writing a piece for um, one of the monthly mags saying, oh, this kid's going to be, this guy is going to be world champion. And they were looking at me a bit sideways because they'd never heard of him. Um, so all that was going on. And so... Yeah, it was great, and I mean, as far as he was concerned, I, I sort of felt a bit like a, I don't know, a, an uncle, you know, watching some relative of his progressing through to, uh, to, you know, to where he got to. So, but yeah, there was a lot going on here. That was the tail end of the, um, you know, the Group C touring cars and Brock and Larry and all that stuff. Yeah, it was. Uh, as like I said, I had to learn a lot in a hurry, but um, it was it was a great time doing. Well, we're in this very different media landscape now, and you've seen so much of it. So, to make a magazine in 1984, what are we talking? Are we talking people couriering stories back from interstate, and because uh, I think a lot of our <laughs> listeners would, you know, they think of publishing these days as type of story, press publish on the internet, put a post on yes. Facebook, done. Yes. No, it was very, very different. The, the the one wonderful advantage that Auto Action had in those days was it had no opposition. It was literally a monopoly. We'll get to that and, soon. And, and it was making a lot of money. Mm. Uh, but the process was, yeah, it's, you know, it's um, typewritten stuff arriving uh, and going through with a red pen and, and editing it and sending it off to the typesetters um, and, 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 you know, a roll, sort of like a mini toilet roll of text coming out and which then had to be laid out on a page and, and then processes of, of uh, doing that turning it to film, cross town going to plates, printing plates and so on and so on and so on and so on. It was, uh, that's what it was in those days. And um, the, all the technology has done is A, save costs, but B, I guess bring forward or shorten the, the, the production time. So those kind of publications come out earlier, the, the printed type publications. But yeah, it was a, was a, was a hell of a process. How did you get... How was the reaction to you arriving? Because you've you've been away. You, you've not been here before. This is not your world. This is completely new. So where did you go? Where did you create those connections? Because you you got to build a bit of a contact book. You've got to build a bit of a, a rapport with with people. Do you remember anyone who made it easy for you, or maybe even made it hard for you? Oh, yeah. No, it's. I think when you're the editor of Auto Action, most people want to talk to you. That's one thing I discovered, um, and but and I was also I brought I did bring my supercar equipment out from the UK, and uh, I do remember quite early on I rented a garage at Calder and I was building something up, and John Bow was running around in an Atlantic car, for example, and he came over and we had a chat, you know, oh you're yeah, all right, actually, yeah, 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 and it just goes like that, and I can remember a test day actually out at Calder, uh, we were out there, and Alan Moffat was there. Um, I think he, that's when he was tied up with Brock and we ended up on the track at the same time and you know like supercar's pretty quick and I caught him up like he was tied to a tree uh, and I went past him and down into the turn one and away and pulled in and you know five minutes later here's Alan Moffat coming across and, I'm, and he's sort of looking like he's not happy uh, you know it's like this, <laughs> this bloody go-kart's just gone down the inside and as he got closer you could see the recognition because he knew I was the editor of Auto Action and the whole tone of it changed and we had a lovely discussion about uh, motor racing. <laughs> when you thought you were going to get absolutely yes. abused. What do you think you're doing out there? What do you think you're yeah. doing? So did you go supercar racing when you came back to Australia? Just for a while, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, as I said, it's the best thing I ever did. 
uh, in Europe, it, it was like the World Championship. It was just amazing. So I brought some stuff out here. I raced for a year or so. Um, and in fact, it was me who coordinated the, there was an international series which included round the Formula One Grand Prix for 85 and 86. And, and I actually coordinated that series. And so we had uh, seven or eight of the top Europeans out here racing. So mm. I did it for just, I guess, 18 months or two years. But, um, you know, by that time I was starting to, you know, um, think maybe there's something else I might try. And that was? <laughs> well, it was touring cars. Yeah. Um, and again, just, just you know, another little junction in the road where you had to take the right turn, you know. Yeah. And as I said, we, we raced at the Grand Prix, uh, and I had a good day. I won the race, um, and we were up on that podium, you know, and I looked down and there on the front row of the forthcoming touring car races, Peter Brock, sitting in his car, and we knew each other because through auto action. And again, you could see the... The, the little little um, tick-tock, tick-tock, as he suddenly recognised who this was. And so that was the year when he had his first young driver, end-of-year talent thing, out of Calder. Yeah, and, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, and yeah. I, got, I got a belated invitation. John Harvey rang up and said, he said, would I like to go out there? And I said, sure, like, I'm media, mate, you know. We're, we're, you. Um, he said, no, no, come out. So I did. And, um, and so, so this is among a pile of other... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was John Crook uh, who won the Formula Two. There was a Formula V guy, and there was, there was several. Sure Kim Jane was part of it too. Could well have been. Um, Gavin Harvey was working for the dealer team at Thomas Review. Drove. Mick Hone was there. There was yeah. There was a bunch of people of very very yes backgrounds. There was seven yeah. or eight, maybe from what I remember. There was a photo in Auto Action at the time. So <laughs> I'm not sure, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if you wrote your own story there, but no, no. Um, but that was the thing in late '86. Yeah, it was the first time we'd done it, and and uh, you know we all got to do a run around, and then and then we would do another run around on, and, and it was some times, and and uh, John Crook went first and did a pretty good time, and then I can't remember who it was, the Formula B guy had an enormous spin, like flat spotted every tire on the car, and all they had left was something that was a little bit harder, so the rest of us got to do use tires fraction. No, perhaps not quite as good as, as what John had had. Anyway, I ended up second quickest, uh, and um, which was satisfying. John, of course, got his gig with the team as a result of that, um, and which was, a, I don't know, a bit of a mixed blessing in the end. But what I did get out of it was a personal reference from Peter Brock uh, to saying that I was, wasn't an idiot, you know, <laughs> uh, which was, which was kind of cool. And that, put, in the end, played its little part in, in us getting where we did with the, the touring car team. So in early 87, his world explodes, yep. literally with Holden and the director and the polarizer and yep. all of that stuff. So yep. Harvey's gone, Moffat's gone, Holden's gone. Yep. You end up buying one of those cars that you had in the pathway to that. Had that come from that test that connected you to buying one of the cars? No, not really. No, no. I, I decided that I'd love to have a go at it. And I guess call it stupid or call it ambitious, whatever, whatever. Anytime I've had a go in, in a new element of sport, I've always tried to get into the top category. Like, I didn't do any of the lesser supercar things. I went straight into the international, and I thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have a, you know, doing some touring cars. So I, I was just quietly trying to find sponsorship, and um, and it, you know, unsuccessfully <laughs> for a couple of years. But then I happened to fax the marketing guy at Bow Repairs, um, this was about the fourth time I'd approached them because I thought their colours would look really good on a car. 
Um, and it turned out they'd had a meeting the day before and were thinking about maybe doing something. And, and literally, in 36 hours, I had a deal uh, with Bow Repairs to do the Bathurst, uh, Sandown Bathurst and the Grand Prix at the end of 1988. Um, now, by now, I was obviously also no longer the editor of Auto Action, which was a good thing. So had you left because you were trying to... No, time no, to no, go no, and race no, no, I'd just been promoted within, within the company. I was uh, what, a new products manager or something, which meant I didn't have these appalling deadlines and things. <laughs> so uh, I was able to, to you know, try and make this happen. And so the first item one was the sponsorship. Now, it wasn't huge, but it was pretty okay. And, of course, Bow Repairs was part of a, a group of companies that included uh, Castrol, Repco. So in a very short space of time, to, you know, put it together. I mean, the the yes from Bow Repairs was on, I think, the 5th of August. Sandown was, what, six or seven weeks later. Yeah, maybe not even that long. And, yeah. I, had, and yeah. I had nothing. I had nothing. So you got a sponsor, but no car, no, no crew, nothing. 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 So um, I knew that they were selling the cars because, as you know, Peter had fallen out with, with, with Holden. So I went around there and, you know, back then, you're the expert now, cars weren't collectibles. They mm. were just things that you disposed of when you'd finished with them. So yeah, I, I bought the number 10 Commodore that Peter had won Bathurst in, the previous, and as it turns out, for the last time. Um, less engine. Uh, I did the deal with Bev, Brock, because Peter wasn't around. Um, and uh, I remember Mort, you know, digging out a couple of sets of wheels and away we went with this thing on a trailer. Um, <laughs> with approximately, yeah, five weeks to the Sandown 500. Um, and I, you know, again, through auto action, I, you know, I knew people and I knew Larry quite well. Um, he was too busy to really help us at that late stage. So I ended up doing a deal with Les Small, who uh, came up with an engine. And remember, this was the very start of the Walkinshaw Commodore era. Um, so there was a few people trying to get going at that time. I think Tony Noski was one of yeah, the others. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember picking up, you know, that big rear deck thing. Mm. Uh, I remember picking up one off John Harvey uh, for our car. It'd come off a road car. Mm. It weighed a ton. But, you know, what, what could you do? Um, and so, yeah, Les put the car together and, and um, somehow we had a little run around and rocked up at Sandown 500. Um, I got introduced uh, to Kerry Bailey, Tasmanian uh, excitement machine, and uh, a number of his guys and crew uh, joined us. To make up a crew and uh, uh, one of them uh, a really good mechanic from where we worked at the age uh, so we made up our little team and uh, yeah away we went so you only had a deal here for these end of year 88 yes races so 89 and whatever came after that would came after that so yes. how did Sandown go with such a late bringing this all together this is your first yeah imagine that. Go. Mean, that that is the slightly sad thing about the waiters today that you can't do that mm. you know um, yeah, we did. We, we got it together and we rocked up. I think we qualified mid-grid, about 16th. Um, and we were running around half okay, and um, I think the engine blew a head gasket in the end. So we, we didn't finish, but, um, you know, it, I guess it was a reasonable reasonable start. And then, and then we went to Bathurst. And, and, yeah, it's my first touring car race was the Sandown 500. I just can't do that these days. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present, 
and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. So had you actually been to Bathurst before you raced at Bathurst? Well, of course. I've been there as auto action. But you've not been on the track? No. Like you know, your Bathurst no, 1000 debut? Oh, mate, the story gets even worse. Uh, Better or worse, depending on no, which way worse, you put it. No, worse, right, worse. Yeah. Like, we rock up to Bathurst, and I've never driven around the track. And somehow, awkwardly, on the second lap of Wednesday practice, this engine threw a conrock. Is this the same sand-down engine that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it had been, you know, yeah, fixed, fixed, but it blew, it blew a conrock, which was quite extraordinary. And uh, I had a deal with this for a spare engine, but it turned out it was still in Melbourne. And so by the time we got hold of it and got in the car, I think we had half an hour uh, before qualifying. You know, and this was back in those days of the, of the Europeans being here and minimum speeds required and a big field and all that stuff. So... Uh, we went into qualifying, um, you know, having a very, very, very few laps, and uh, we um, just kind of scraped in, just. Uh, and I think they were a little bit kind to us as well in the percentages. So, um, you know, it wasn't the best start, but you know, at the end of the day, um, in the race, we ran around, um, <laughs> had to change a prop shaft halfway through the race very quickly, but we, we finished just outside the 10, I think 12th or 13th, and you know, that was okay. Mm. So, when did this? So, this has got the wheels mm. rolling. Are bow repairs happy with this? That this is yeah, they what they kind of thought it would be? Yeah, they understood what they were getting. They, they weren't getting a you know a professional team or they, they just wanted a car in their livery, mm. uh, you know, not, not, not looking silly and running around. So, um, they were reasonably happy with that, and we did the Grand Prix again, reasonably happy. And so at that point, we'd had the discussion about, well, you know, do we want to do it again next year? And they did, um, which was really cool. Again, not zillions of dollars, but enough to run a, you know, a respectable private team. So um, we ended up winning the Privateers Cup, which was, um, I think Russell Stuckey donated it, and it's so called the Jim Clark Trophy. Which is a really nice connection for you yes. because you're a huge gym club. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we again, we weren't up, and this is when, of course, everyone's racing a Ford Sierra. Mm. If it yeah. wasn't a Sierra, it was a Skyline. Yeah. It was all turbos, so yeah. the odd privateer yeah. Commodore is yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. We were the first of the normally aspirated cars, you mm. know, in, in, the, in the Touring Car Championship. Like Larry didn't even bother. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it was a slightly odd time to be doing it, but, you know, I... Uh, to me, it was an experience, and, and um, I, I got to say that uh, it, it's completely different from my previous world of supercars. And, and I got to tell you that a touring car, compared with something like a supercar, is is a little bit of a bowl of custard in some ways. Mm. And you really do have to readapt and think completely differently. And you know, uh, as a private team, I thought we we did okay, and um, and and then. You know, we were able to perhaps step up a little bit following him. Where does Bob Jones come into this whole mix? Because he because mm. he ended up becoming owner of the car somewhere along the line. Yeah, oh, right at the that. start actually, yeah. through a through a karting uh, colleague of mine. Um, we were looking for someone to paint it in its original bow repair, right at the start. So you got like, it as a mobile white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Car with yeah, yeah, number ten on yeah. it, the whole box and dice. Uh, I know. <laughs> we took all the all the all the bits off it and put them to one side. Um, and, and did the conversion to the Walkinshaw car, and uh, got a, a karting colleague of mine said, "Oh, uh, this guy Bob, I know, you know, it's got a car p- 
hang on a paint place, go and talk to him, he might do you a good deal on a paint job, which he did. Mm. Uh, but also, he, you know, I could see he's, he's, he lit up a little bit and really, um, before we even got to our first race, he'd agreed to take over as the owner of the car. So, Which takes a lot of oh. pressure. So how were you? How did you finance the car from the sponsorship money, or did you? No. How did you make that uh, all happen? It, it was um, uh, how can I put it? Uh, added to the house mortgage. Right. Yeah. Not the last time that kind of stuff's happened, and, mm-hmm. I, and yeah. I know some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you do crazy things sometimes. So uh, yes, yeah, so I know it was a great relief, and uh, he, he was the car owner, and. Um, he, he, he threw himself into it in the way Bob does. And yes, at the end of that second year, um, he bought the, because um, we built a new car up, I think, because as you probably recall, the famous 10 car, I backed it, I think it was the last person to back into the concrete wall at turn two at Oran Park before they moved it back mm. uh, and uh, absolutely crushed it up to the rear screen. <laughs> Uh, and we just put it to one side and built a new shell and everything and Bob bought that off me at the end of that year and I kind of half threw in this pile of wreckage sitting in the corner oh. yes I know the oh. Brock 10 car yeah I know I shoot myself every time I tell this story um, and yeah so Bob went racing mm. after that and uh, you know you couldn't get a more uh, committed enthusiastic guy it, it, it made it a lot easier for us um, the, the wreck the wrecked shell and, and some of the bits sat there for a while and someone uh, took it off his hands and, as you know, got rebuilt, renovated um, and is now owned by Kenny Habul. That's mm. a 12-hour, uh, two-time winner yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I believe that Kenny was part of Brock's crew, a bit of a gopher back in the Commodore yeah. days. Yeah. So he, he owns the car now and it's worth a fairly healthy seven-figure sum. Yeah. So I think I will shoot myself. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. It's... Just had, and that's as you said before, because we've dealt here in this business now with so much of the the car history stuff. This is not a one-off story. There are multiple stories like this because you sold one to get the next thing to keep racing on the faster car, the new model, the upgraded engine, the whatever it was. And no one was, and it's the same now though. There's no current team that can generally, unless they're in a very good financial place, pluck a car out of their inventory and park it up because it's done something significant or special. It's the same these days. So we're going to have the same chats in 10, 20, 30 years about recent stuff as well. I guess so, though I noticed that with the current cars, a lot of collectors are buying this current fleet and some are putting them in sheds and some are leasing them off to Super 2 mm. competitors. Now, that, that whole Super 2 thing is... is uh, it's a very smart business thing by supercars and it gives them somewhere for those cars to go and, and it retains their value. But as I said, I, um, I, I probably, the, 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 uh, the, the damaged 10 car shell and a lot of the original bits probably changed hands for around $5,000 back then. And can we, we'll move on. We'll yeah, move okay. on. We'll we've, move we've on. talked about it Yeah, um, because by that point I had um, half done a deal with Fred Gibson to to acquire one of the HR31 Skylines for the following year. You know, Bow Repairs were keen to up the ante a little bit. We were still a private team, but that was a, that was the best thing that we could afford anyway. You yeah. know, Sierras were out of the question, but, um, you know, that, that was interesting too. And Greg Crick comes into the mix here too, Tasmania's yes. finest. How does he yes. weave into this whole thing? 
Well, he'd co-driven in the Commodore uh, that, that last time, and, and that's what you did in those days. The word went around. You were looking for a co-driver, and Cricky popped up and brought a little bit of sponsorship and some of his guys to the team, and he was great. Uh, you know, we, we had a pretty good run at Bathurst uh, in the Commodore, uh, although, you know, there was an engine issue, but uh, at the end of the year with the Nissan, um, you know, that, that was that, that's a car that was built for the long-distance races. It really was, and just ran like a sewing machine and um, we finished in the top 10 at Bathurst and, and he was just great you know like these days I tell him we taught him everything he knows because you know he's gone on and done quite a lot of really good things since and I remember it was at the, uh, the 12 hour the other year he was in a podium car and stuff like yeah. that really good guy and um, that, that was the essence of those kind of teams in those days. Just one little quick one to finish off that last car or the new car that he mm. built so not only did it do the Enduros in late 89, but you went to New Zealand. Remember at the end of the year, Wellington, Pookie, they had a back-to-back weekend there. Wasn't there an infamous incident where that that car ended up with the Gianfranco Brancatelli, the Italian in the peanut slab, Sierra, who got pretty, how you say, annoyed about uh, well, coming the, together. Yeah, but there was a, there's yes, a couple of elements yes, to this. There was, there was. No, you... <laughs> you uh, any photo of Gianfranco Brancatelli, you'll notice his eyes look like they're out on stalks. He's an excitable fellow. And, yeah, look, he was um, he was leading that, the Wellington Street Race, which is a really concrete-bound place. It was well into the race, and uh, he was actually coming up to lap me and about two or three other cars that were in a, a big group. Uh, and, you know, this group was fighting it out for fourth and fifth place. But this, this, this peanut slab Sierra was going like a rocket. And he came up behind us, coming up to a, a bit of a, an S-bend through the concrete. And, you know, I knew he was there and, and I thought, OK, well, once we get through here, he's just going to, you know, go past. Well, he flung it down the inside. I really don't know why, but he did. And he bounced off me into the concrete, flew through the air, you know, and it damaged my car. Uh, and it was sort of, oh, my God. So I pulled into the pits and my guys leapt out to... Um, see what's happening and Jim Franco came up pit lane with this brown chocolate brown Sierra steam pouring out of it uh, and he stopped it next to my car and was gesticulating at my guys and, getting, and then he did a burnout and parked the car and next thing car owner Mark Pitch um, was walking down pit lane as if he's going to tell us how it is but um, fortunately Bob was there Bob Jones and Bob's not a small guy and I think at some point, Mark Pitch might just have thought the odds aren't great here, and he turned around and went back. But, um, yeah, we, we repaired the car, and, and, and that one race I co-drove with a good friend of mine, Gerald Kay, and, um, again, I think we finished in the top ten. Uh, a few repairs, but, yeah, it was um, that was an interesting one. And that, that incident, you know how on sports shows they show little three-second and four-second clips in the intro. Well, it was on the New Zealand sports show for the next year and a half. <laughs> well, wasn't there... I think this race is somewhere on YouTube. I've got a copy of it somewhere on a, a tape somewhere. Didn't Bob give some post, like, an interview to the broadcast, something along the line of, we're Australians, we're tough, we'll take him on. Like, he was, he was ready to go. Exactly, exactly, mate. No, that's when he came into his own. It was, uh, <laughs> no, it was pretty fantastic. And it was funny because um, the commentators that day uh, included David Oxton, who was mm. my driver, and um, just going back into the hotel that night, he said, oh, when you see the tape, he says, look, um, watch it all the way through. He says, when it first happened, we thought it might have been your... You know, your fault, but then we redid really the thing, and you know, he shouldn't have even thought about it. And so he was really nice about it. And um, but yeah, no, uh, we used to call him Big Bob. 
Bob Jones. And, you know, he, he went on to, to race quite successfully. He, he got second in the Sandown 500 mm-hmm. uh, with that car. And uh, so, yeah, no, his um, character. Yeah, definitely. We'll get him on the pod one day. I reckon he's, he's got yeah. some stories for sure. So the Nissan was 1990, which was one of the HR31 six-cylinder turbo skylines that Freddie and his team had been running. So uh, was that purely a case of we need some, a bit more of... We need a better car, basically. We need to be more competitive. Yeah, it was the best we could do. You know, I got a half-reasonable deal did, out, out did, of Freddie. What did you do to the, the loan here with the mortgage? Did you, did oh, you well, play this card again? Well, no, no, Bob had bought the, the, um, you know, the original Commodore off me as a car owner. So, no, that was sorted out early on, and that was great. But... Um, yeah, no, we the Bow Repairs was prepared to up the ante a bit to, to try and move, you know, into a turbo car and so as I said I got quite a good deal out out of Freddie. Um, it was the very first car of the HR thirty ones, not quite as glam as the, the latter ones, but pretty good mm. and pretty reliable. Um, and so, you know, we, we did the championship again pretty um, you know, strongly, not a not a Sierra, but it was a step forward and we, we learnt a lot and um, as I think you came to uh, learn of some some of the cars that came out of that team, particularly the four-wheel drives one, there were a few areas where the rules were stretched a little bit to make it competitive and uh, I'll remember really giving me a guided tour of the car the day we picked it up about things that we shouldn't talk about. There's <laughs> statute of limitations clear now that we can. Apparently. <laughs> so what, what did you say? What did you buy? What was oh, different? it was just, 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 just little dimensional things stretched, you know. I mean, clearly those cars, as road cars, were nowhere near a Sierra. And how, how they managed to get the HR31 in particular to the point where it was winning races. Mm. A lot of that was Richo. You know, he was an amazing, amazing driver. And, um, you know, there were circuits that suited it. But, but really, you know, getting that car into a competitive state was, a, was a, an amazing job. They sounded so good, the HR31. They were epic. Yeah, well, the one time, actually, you funny you should mention that, it was a bit like a sewing machine. It was so reliable. And I remember probably at some point in practice at Bathurst, like, it was so fast. It was touching 300 down the straight. And just once I remember thinking to myself, if this goes wrong, I'm in serious shit. You know, it was just going so fast and uh, and it was very reliable and, and as I said Cricky and, and I um, got a decent privateer result I you were top 10 weren't you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's that's in that era of 50 odd cars and factory teams and big turbo cars that's the HRT ended up winning with win Percy and Alan Grice but for you, for your little team, a top 10 at Bathurst that's that's like a win that's a big ticket oh exactly and look and, and you know, it's it's uh, interested the people that were involved at the time but uh, we, we had a, a weird glitch emerged on race day of the car which ultimately was something to do with the throttle switch but you know there was one two three four second gear corners at Bathurst and if you came out of them and gave full throttle the whole engine switched off mm. it's just switched off and you had to sort of bang it into neutral restart it and go again so the only way around it was to actually feather the throttle in second gear and then get into third gear so we were kind of nursing it from the very start all day and I like, cricket did a great job and, uh, and I remember um, literally the last time across the mountain he came on the radio he said the engine was making a funny noise and it uh, yeah it wasn't in a good state but he got it over the line oh, close yeah close yeah so that that deal ended. Was that a case of bow repairs at the end of the year said, hey, this has been great, but sorry, we can't go on with it? 
Well, yes, that was uh, the recession we had mm. to have, mm. and you Even know, it was all getting on. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and you know, they were laying off a lot of staff. Um, it's a bit like what's happening out there now. Uh, they didn't feel they could be, you know, involved in this kind of thing whilst they were doing it. So, you know, yeah, uh, happily and respectfully, they decided to to uh, to step back. You know, and I, I tried to find replacement sponsors and things like that, but it, um, you know, it was very difficult back then. So that was the end of it. So for nineteen ninety one, what are you doing? What's your, what's your gig? What's your job? Are you just floating, trying to piece something together here, or? Back to publishing, or what's, what's well, your Well, at the time, I was still working for Sign Magazines. Mm. Uh, more or less, I guess, somewhere uh, to IC, almost at the time, and new projects and this and that. So it was just normal normal work. But again, the recession was happening, and uh, the Fairfax uh, family were staking their claim to the age, and all hell was breaking loose. And so it wasn't a great surprise, really, when in... Um, early part of 93, uh, they dragged me to say, you know, you're going to be retrenched, mm. um, which was, was interesting. Um, yeah, a very interesting time. You did, though, make a start at Bathurst in 91, even though you didn't have your own car or no bar repairs. How did it come to be that you ended up driving the gem spares? Yes. Was that a bit of a late last minute? Yes, deal? it was. Yes, it was. Um, oh, God, my memory. Uh, the co-driver that, that was scheduled to drive it was ill. And I was just wandering around pit lane. Did you have your helmet with you, just in uh, case? You must have. No, you have to borrow no, it. No, no, I had to borrow some gear. Uh, and, um, yeah, they, they said, look, he's not going to make it in terms of being able to race. So, you know, um, away we go. So, again, a handful of laps in practice. And uh, we did the race, typical privateer, Commodore thing. You finished outside the top ten, but finished. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great result. For that team, just a, one of those surprise yeah. opportunities that just appears right place, right time. Yeah, like to rent home them. and get someone to drive up in a race suit and get some bobs <laughs> and just yeah, you know, just right place, right time. I guess the whole way through this, you've still got the Nissan in that early nineties period because the factory team moved on to the GDR, the, the HR thirty ones were still you know, they were around, but they weren't in operation. Mm. But you tried a few times to get that car, and I think you entered it for Bathurst, didn't you? That was going to be, and we've talked about this many times, and it's been written about occasionally, you were trying to put together Craig Lowndes' first yes. Bathurst 1000 yes. for 92, I think it was, the last year of the Group A era. Uh, actually, it might have even been 91. Mm. Uh, I, 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 and yes, I mean, Craig's luck was in that that didn't actually happen <laughs> and when he did make his debut it was pretty spectacular but yeah I was talking to his dad and Stephen White's dad uh, we were going to try and put it together to run the Nissan at uh, Sandown and Bathurst as a sort of a junior car and we were three quarters of the way there to, to making it happen uh, but as it got closer it just wasn't quite going to add up unfortunately and, and, and it didn't yeah it, yeah. it didn't happen so for a brief while there, <laughs> Craig Lowndes' debut uh, may well have been in a Nissan Skyline, but it didn't happen, and I think, uh, I think motorsport is probably better for it, because uh, <laughs> the debut he did make was with a pretty decent team, and uh, gosh, he went on the door, I think. And that's where we'll leave it, just for the moment, for part one of my chat with Chris Landon. Some great stories, some great insight there from Carts to Brock, and so much more. 
Next week, part two drops on the pod and we delve further into the motorsport news era, his time on the Supercast Commission, and we go in-depth on S5000, the long road into how it came to be, with plenty of speed humps and bumps along the way. Now, before I go, make the Castrol Motorsport News podcast part of your weekly motorsport listening habits. Every Tuesday, with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomew, for the latest in insights and analysis, it's keeping the MN name alive in a new era. I'll have another Repco Supercars weekly episode later this week and part two of my chat with Chris Lambden next week. Look forward to joining you then. Bye for now. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.